Good morning, beloved. I want to join the course and say to all of our ladies this morning, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and give you peace on this Mother's Day. We love you and we are so fortunate and privileged and happy for your presence with us in our lives. Let's pray and then we will get back into the story of of Abraham. Lord God, you have promised in Isaiah 55 that your word goes out akin to rain and snow that waters the earth and gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater, and and that your word will not return to you void, but that it will accomplish what you have purposed for it. And we are trusting that that promise and that word is true concerning this ancient text of Genesis 20 that we are about to look at. We pray, Lord, use this time for your pleasure and your glory. Uh, Perhaps there are hearts and minds here that need encouragement. Would you do that? Or correction, would you do that? Or whatever it is that is your pleasure, Lord, I pray that you would come now and be Lord over your word, Lord over the interpretation of your word, Lord over the minds and hearts now that will receive your word. We pray in the mighty and in the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, whenever I start to gravitate toward thinking that I am indispensable in God's kingdom work, I like to reflect on the story that is given to us in 1 Samuel verses or chapters 4 through 6. This is a section of scripture that teaches me that whenever it may be necessary, God is more than capable of carrying out his designs all by himself without any human help. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel suffers a major defeat at the hands of the Philistines So the elders of Israel then reason that what they needed in their midst was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, they think, will act as a sort of rabbit's foot, a good luck charm that will guarantee them success in future battles. Now that's not the best understanding of the nature and the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, what happens is that during round two against the Philistines, Israel loses considerably more men than in the first battle that they had waged against them. And the Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines. And it's at that point of the story that God's people, the Israelites, are then moved temporarily out of the picture and the focus turns to the Philistines who now have the Ark. The Philistines take the Ark of Yahweh into Philistia, into their temple of their god named Dagon. And this is a clear attempt, as they take the Ark into the temple of Dagon, it's a clear attempt to symbolize Dagon's sovereignty over Yahweh. But what happens is that twice, if we remember the story, twice the Philistines come into the temple only to find the statue of their god, Dagon, fallen on its face before the Ark of Yahweh. And the second time that the statue topples over, its head and its hands are broken off. Well, the Philistines begin to believe that the Ark of Yahweh is like a dangerous nuclear reactor of sorts. And so they ship it around like a hot potato to various locations within Philistia. And everywhere the Ark goes, trouble follows for the Philistines. And finally, a breaking point comes and the Philistines have had enough. They call UPS And they ship the ark back to Israel along with a guilt offering attached to it. They never want to see that thing again. Now, friends, what we notice in that little story is that God 
God whose presence dwelt in between the two cherubim on top of the ark, God was more than capable of working his designs there in Philistia and asserting his sovereignty with no Israelites around to help him. God was more than able, all by himself, to topple the false god Dagon and then get himself back to Israel on the top of the ark with plunder from Philistia. You see, our God is not dependent on human assistance. Did you know that? Our God can carry out his designs and will carry out his designs without his people if necessary. Now, of course, in his grace and in his love, he has covenanted with his people and he desires to work with us. Yes, he does. But if push comes to shove, God can get the job done all by himself. Now, all of what I've just said is intro material to Genesis 20, which is our preaching text this morning. Genesis 20, we need to understand, is a story of God staying on track with God's covenant designs with precious little help from his covenant partner, Abraham. Or better, and more to the point, Genesis 20 is a story of God sovereignly overruling the stupid decisions of his covenant partner, Abraham, in order that God may stay on track with God's covenant designs. Let's go to the chapter. Verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed. So from the area of Sodom, where Abraham had been in Genesis 19, he journeyed. He journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, so that arid desert area that was in the south. And he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now, Gerar was a Philistine city. But it was within the borders of the land that had been promised to Abraham. But Abraham is kind of almost on the very outskirts now of the promised land. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the story of Abraham over these many weeks, verse 2 is going to sound very familiar to you because back in the latter half of Genesis chapter 12, Abraham had journeyed down to Egypt. And on that earlier occasion, Abraham had tried, hadn't he, to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister, and on that earlier occasion, Pharaoh of Egypt had taken Sarah into his harem temporarily. Well, the same thing is happening again here in Genesis 20, almost to the letter, although this time, this time it's happening in the land of the Philistines instead of the land of Egypt. And this time, notice, it's happening after Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, where God had forged his covenant with Abraham. It's like the post-covenant Abraham here in Genesis 20, who's now attempting to work a strategy of deceit in order to protect himself in Philistia. He's not a whole lot different here than the pre-covenant Abraham of Genesis 12, who had done the same thing in Egypt. And so the text of Scripture is raising the question, how much has Abraham really changed? Now, maybe some of us can relate to Abraham. Listen, before we were in covenant with Jesus Christ, we acted stupidly sometimes because of our fear. And after we came into covenant with Jesus Christ, 
we still sometimes act stupidly out of our fear. The question is, can we see ourselves, I hope, in the fearful post-covenant Abraham of Genesis 20 who looks a lot like the fearful pre-covenant Abraham of Genesis 12? Let's keep going in the text to see what it is teaching us. Abraham comes into Gerar and once again he tries to pass Sarah off as his sister. Why does Abraham does do this? Because Abraham feared that if the Philistines knew that Abraham and Sarah were husband and wife, that somebody would kill the husband, Abraham, in order to take Sarah as their wife. But if Abraham claimed that he and Sarah were siblings, well, then there would be no reason to kill Abraham. He's just the brother of this woman. This plan of Abraham's, we need to see, was about Abraham's safety. Abraham's safety. No matter the risk that it puts Sarah in, and never mind the fact that obedience to God was put on the back burner in the interests of personal safety. Can we see ourselves in this text? Abraham lies about the relationship between Sarah and himself, and this results in Abimelech, the king of Gerar, Abimelech, the Philistine king, now taking Sarah. Now, friends, at this juncture of the story of Abraham, we need to notice we are on the very eve of Isaac's birth. Isaac will be born to Abraham and Sarah in the very next chapter. When this foreign king named Abimelech takes Sarah into his personal harem, in this moment here in Genesis 20, God's whole program of redemption, his whole program of redemption, a program that said specifically that Abraham and Sarah would conceive and bear a son, a son through whom the seed of the woman would continue to descend, bringing redemption to the world, This whole program of God's redemption is now thrown into jeopardy as Abimelech takes Sarah and the jeopardy has been caused by Abraham's stupid decision. Well, behold your God at work now as Genesis 20 progresses. No help from Abraham... God sovereignly maintains control here all by himself. God's plan of redemption through this family will not be jeopardized by the patriarch of this family. Watch what God does. Abimelech, the Philistine king in Gerar, the one who had just taken Sarah into his harem, he's sawing logs now. snoring away in his bed after a hard day in the Philistine palace. He's in deep REM sleep. Let him sleep. Verse 3. But God, important words in the text of Scripture, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Now, friends, have you ever had a startling dream that has woken you up suddenly in a cold sweat? Abimelech has the most startling dream that you can imagine. God shows up suddenly there in Abimelech's bedchamber in his sleep, and the first thing out of God's mouth is that Abimelech is a dead man. Somehow, Abimelech stays sleeping. (laughs) Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's 
wife. Now, obviously, the message that God is giving to Abimelech here in this dream is, A, that Sarah, who had been taken into Abimelech's harem, was a married woman, and B, that God is greatly offended when a man takes another man's wife. Whether it happens in Israel or whether it happens in Philistia or whether it happens in Canada or elsewhere, God hates adultery. Amen? Amen. Watch where the story goes next. Something pretty interesting happens. Notice that verse 4 begins with a comment from the narrator of Genesis. The beginning of verse 4 is the narrator saying, Now Abimelech had not approached Sarah, meaning Abimelech had not had any sexual encounter with Sarah. So at the start of verse 4, we need to notice this, the start of verse 4, the narrator of Genesis informs us of Abimelech's innocence concerning any possible sexual contact with Sarah. And this is important because, again, as we said already, in the next story, in next chapter of the story of Abraham, Isaac will be born, and there can be no question as to who Isaac's father is. It's not Abimelech. And the narr- narrator of Genesis makes that clear to us here at the beginning of verse 4. At the end of verse 4, Abimelech, still in his dream state, begins now to respond to God. They have this conversation in the dream. Abimelech says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So notice this. Just as Abraham had begun his speech... In Genesis chapter 18, with a question about God's justice, Lord, he had said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now Abimelech begins his speech to God with a question about God's justice. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So these chapters are dealing with the whole nature of the justice of God. Now note something interesting here. Note carefully here that God has approached, listen, he has approached Abimelech in the dream and he's approached him as an individual. But now in Abimelech's question, Abimelech shows concern not as much for himself as an individual, but rather Abimelech shows concern that God might kill an innocent people an innocent nation, as it's rendered in some of our English Bibles. Isn't that interesting? What we have here, friends, is a little window into the thought world of the ancients. Namely, they perceived that whatever happened to the king happened to the nation. Or as Bruce Waltke has put it, the king and his nation are inseparable. When God threatens death on Abimelech, Abimelech perceives that threat in terms of the entire nation over which he is king. Now, we're going to come back to that idea toward the end today because it's important, this idea of the ancient king being the nation in some very real sense. Abimelech continues his dream state defense in verse 5. He says to God, Well, did he, meaning Abraham, did, did Abraham not say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech quotes both Abraham and Sarah here. Both Abraham and Sarah had claimed that they were siblings. That's all Abimelech had to go on when he took Sarah into his harem. Abimelech claims his own innocence in this matter. He had no way of knowing that Abraham and Sarah were actually married. So his thoughts, his intentions, his actions had been innocent. So that 
in verse 4, we had the narrator claiming Abimelech's innocence in the matter of sex. There had been no sexual encounter between Abimelech and Sarah. And now in verse 5, we have Abimelech claiming innocence in the matter of taking Sarah into his harem. So both the narrator, we need to notice, both the narrator and Abimelech have now claimed Abimelech's innocence. Verse 6, what about God? What does God say? Then God said to Abimelech in the dream, Yes, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God here confirms both the narrator's assessment back in verse 4 that Abraham had not touched Sarah, and God confirms Abimelech's assessment in verse 5 that Abimelech had innocently taken Sarah into his harem, not knowing that Sarah was married. So now God, we need to see, joins both the narrator and Abimelech in declaring Abimelech innocent. So we get three different pronouncements of Abimelech's innocence in just three verses, from the narrator, from Abimelech himself, and now from God himself. However, having said that, notice carefully in verse 6 that God here talks twice about how he had had to restrain Abimelech from sinning with Sarah. Do you notice this? God says to Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against me. And God says to Abimelech, I did not let you touch Sarah. And so what's the implication of that? The implication is that left to his own devices, Abimelech would have sinned in this matter. He would have touched Sarah. So we need to understand here that it wasn't any moral fortitude on Abimelech's part that had held him back from sleeping with Sarah. Rather, it had been the restraining power of God that had held this non-covenant person back from sinning. Why had God restrained Abimelech like this? The answer is because God will stay on track with his covenant designs. Sarah will birth Isaac by Abraham and not by Abimelech. Despite the folly of Abraham, which had led to this potential sin on Abimelech's part, God remains sovereignly in control of the entire situation. Do you see this? Again, friends, God can get his work done even with no human help. He can carry out his designs even when his covenant partners go off the rails because he's God. In verse 7, God gives instructions now to Abimelech. Notice this. God says, Now then, here's what you got to do, Abimelech. Return the man's wife, for he, that is Abraham, listen to what God says, he, Abraham, is a prophet. So that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. God sounds here like he did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Don't touch that tree. You shall surely die. Obey my command or you shall surely die. He says to Abimelech, if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Back in verse 3, God had said to Abimelech, behold, you are a dead man. And now in verse 7, we understand what the reason would be for Abimelech's death. Abimelech was in possession of Sarah. And if Sarah remained in Abimelech's possession, Abimelech and his household were as good as dead. To not return Sarah to her husband Abraham would mean Abimelech's certain demise by the hand of Almighty God. 
Now, the other thing that, about verse 7 that bothers us is that Abimelech, Abimelech, who in this chapter has appeared significantly more righteous than Abraham has, Abimelech will need prayer from the one who deceived him in order to survive. You notice this. Abimelech will need prayer from deceitful Abraham. (laughs) And deceitful Abraham is also called a prophet in this verse. In fact, Abraham is the first person in the entire Bible to be called a prophet, and it happens right here in verse 7. Well, I think maybe Abraham the prophet in this case is a little like Jonah the prophet. Abraham is deceitful here in Genesis 20, and so from his deceit he brings trouble on the heads of the people who are outside of the covenant, the Philistines. In later times, Jonah the prophet was disobedient and so brought trouble on the heads of non-covenant people when he was with them in the ship at sea. So the lesson is, clearly when God appoints his prophets, it's not due to any merit on the part of the prophets. Are you with me? It's not due to any merit on the part of the prophets. God has appointed frail Abraham as a prophet, according to verse 7, and through the prayers of this frail, wavering vessel named Abraham, God will restore life to Abimelech. To quote M.R. Jacobs, I love this quote, God's purpose is more important than the person involved. God's purpose is more important than the person involved. Abraham had brought nothing but curse here to the Philistines when Abraham had been called, hadn't he? He'd been called to be a blessing to the nations. Now he's a curse to the nations here. But God will still ensure blessing for the nations by overruling the mess that Abraham has caused here and having Abraham pray for the nations. Abraham will end up still being a blessing to the nations despite his folly. Let's go to verse 8. Now the dream ends. The conversation in the dream ends. Abraham now springs out of bed. He's awake. Rises early in the morning and immediately, notice what he does, immediately he calls his servants and tells them how much about what's just happened. He tells them everything about the dream. So Abimelech is more forthcoming and he is more transparent with people than Abraham had been when Abraham had come into Gerar lying about his wife. So Abimelech looks more righteous than Abraham again. And here Abimelech shares everything very transparently with his servants. And the men, says verse 8, were very much afraid. In this ancient Near Eastern culture, they believed very strongly that God communicated through dreams. So they are very much afraid here. Verses 9 and 10. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? Now notice again that Abimelech the king takes what happens to him and he links it automatically to the people of the nation. What happens to Abimelech happens to the nation. And so he asks here, it's not what have you done to me, but rather what have you done to us, because it's about the nation. And he says, how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great guilt or a great sin. Again, what happened to Abimelech in this matter with Sarah affects the whole kingdom of Abimelech. As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Abimelech continues, You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see? That you did this thing. See, friends, what God is doing here is he's allowing Abraham to take deserved heat from a foreign king who lives outside of the covenant. For Abraham's disobedience, for his failure to trust God again, 
Abraham must now sit in the hot seat and bear the reproach of a Philistine king. In fact, Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary on Genesis, has suggested that here Abimelech might actually be speaking words of divine correction to Abraham. This could be God speaking chastisement through the Philistine king Abimelech into Abraham's life. Well, in verses 11 through 13, Abraham now speaks as the defendant in this matter. It's like a little court case here. Abraham said... You want to know why I tried to pass off Sarah as my sister? I did it because I thought, listen to what he says, there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Now, massive irony here, right? The irony lies in the fact that if anyone didn't fear God in Genesis 20, it was Abraham. But yet here Abraham is describing his doubt in the Philistines, his doubts that they feared God. Here in Genesis 20, it was Abraham's lack of trust in God. It was Abraham's lack of obedience to God. It was Abraham's trust in himself and his own human strategies that was the match that lit the fire of this whole sordid mess. Abraham was the one who had shown a real lack in the fear of God department. While the Philistines, for their part, they had actually shown that they feared God, hadn't they? For example, after Abimelech had heard from God in the dream, he had jumped out of bed immediately and he'd set about to make things right as fast as he could. And the Philistine servants had been very afraid. In verse 8, after they'd heard of Abimelech's encounter with God, there had been the fear of God amongst the Philistines. In this chapter, at least, the Philistines actually appear more reverent toward God than Abraham does. So Abraham's assumption in verse 11 that the Philistines did not fear God was way off. And Abraham probably should have been looking in the mirror to take stock of his own trust and obedience level as he stood before God. And friends, I think, I think there's a little redemptive poke toward you and I here in verse 11. As insiders with Jesus Christ, how often might it be, and I want you to listen carefully, how often might it be that we underestimate the moral and spiritual standing of those outside the church? How often can we be quite hypocritical as we make assumptions and make pronouncements about outsiders? They have no fear of God, unlike me. I say to you, let verse 11 interpret you uncomfortably if necessary, and may it bring us to our knees in repentance if necessary. Abraham continues his rather pathetic defense in verse 12. Now he claims a moral loophole, a moral loophole that he thinks justifies the lie that he had told Abimelech. Listen to this. It's just so human. Abraham says, ah, besides, Sarah is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though admittedly not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. (laughs) The problem with what Abraham says here in verse 12 is that whether Sarah was his sister or not, he had hidden the most important fact when he had come into Gerar, which was that Sarah was his wife. Incidentally, in case you're sort of wondering about Abraham uh, marrying his half-sister, at a later time in the Old Testament, the law would end up banning marriage to sisters. 
But the law was not revealed here in this place yet. Let's go to verse 13. Abraham's lame defense just goes on now. He says, now this is interesting. He says, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house. The interesting thing here at the beginning of verse 13 is that the original Hebrew could viably be rendered here, and when God's, plural, the verb is plural here, wander, And when God's caused me to wander from my father's house. God's, plural. Abraham is talking to Abimelech. And Abimelech was a Philistine who believed in many gods, not just one God. Could Abraham be accommodating the religious worldview of Abimelech here by saying, God's caused me to wander? We kind of wonder about this. It's an interesting thing. He continues in verse 13 by incriminating both himself and Sarah. He admits here that when he and Sarah had left Haran, now listen to this, when they had left Haran, so this is way back in Genesis 12 at the beginning of the Abraham story, Abraham at that point had said to Sarah, listen to what he said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Aha! So now we learn that this brother-sister lie had been a long-standing policy of sorts between Abraham and Sarah that they had long ago agreed upon. They had carried this hoax out at every place in which they had wandered. And we have record of it happening in Genesis 12 in Egypt, and we have record of it happening here in Genesis 20 in Philistia. But were there other places, perhaps unrecorded in Scripture, where Abraham and Sarah had carried this out? Whenever they had carried out the brother-sister lie, it demonstrated, friends, it demonstrated their lack of trust in God. That's what it demonstrated. And the fact that the brother-sister lie is positioned here in Genesis 20, right on the brink of Genesis 21, where Isaac will be born, and right on the brink of Genesis 22, where Abraham will be commanded to sacrifice Isaac, this may be very significant. As Tremper Longman says, the brother-sister lie in Genesis 20 shows that Abraham has not yet broken through to a position of utter trust in God. And Genesis 22 is right around the corner where Abraham's trust in God will be tested in a most severe fashion. So Abraham has less than two chapters to get a grip on trusting God. We'll see where where it goes. We know the story. We probably know where it goes. Well, in verses 14 through 16, and watch this now because it's scandalous. It's scandalous. Now God blesses Abraham in spite of Abraham. In this chapter, Abraham has acted dishonorably. And he has acted dishonestly, and his faith has been extraordinarily weak. We need to see this, friends. And now in astounding grace, God blesses Abraham through Abimelech. God grants Abraham what Abraham in no way deserves. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, right after Abraham's lame defense. He took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. So in obedience to the command of God in the dream, Abimelech does the right thing and he returns Sarah to Abraham And with the sheep and the oxen and the servants, Abimelech here is compensating Abraham for the trespass that Abimelech had unknowingly committed. Verse 15, it keeps going. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. 
So for the brother-sister lie that had happened in Genesis 12, Pharaoh had booted Abraham out of his land. But Abimelech here does the opposite. He asks Abraham to stay in his land. Verse 16, Abraham continues talking to Sarah now. And he says to Sarah, or Abimelech continues talking to Sarah. And he says, behold, I have given your, what? Your brother. So Abimelech is either, you know, believing what Abraham said or he's kind of rubbing rubbing it in a bit. I have given your brother. A thousand pieces of silver, or better, a thousand shekels of silver. Friends, a thousand shekels of silver would be about 25 pounds of silver, which Bruce Waltke calls a fabulously large sum. Waltke says, listen to to this, he says, a Babylonian laborer usually paid a half shekel per month would have to work 167 years to earn such a sum. thousand shekels of silver. Abimelech continues talking to Sarah. He says, This silver is a sign of your innocence, Sarah, in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone, you are vindicated. Abimelech's concern here is that everybody knows the truth that is with Sarah, that Sarah had not been involved in any kind of sexual impropriety while she was in Gerar. Verses 17 and 18, finally. Then deceitful Abraham, who had messed things up so terribly, prayed to God. God heard the prayer of this sinful person and God healed Abimelech. Healed Abimelech. Had Abimelech been afflicted with some sort of STD or something? We're not sure. God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. Isn't it interesting, friends, that Abraham, the one who had nearly brought death to Abimelech, death to Abimelech's kingdom by his folly, Abraham is now put in the position to pray for Abimelech so that Abimelech's life can be restored. God restores life to Abimelech as Abraham prays. And what we also see in these two verses, these last verses of the chapter, is that when God had threatened Abimelech back in verse 3 with the words, you are a dead man, what God had meant, according to the information now given in verses 17 and 18, is that if Sarah was not returned to Abraham, then Abimelech and his kingdom would die from a divinely imposed infertility. The king's indiscretion in taking Sarah into his harem would result in a kingdom-wide death penalty. But it didn't happen because the one who caused the whole mess prayed and God gave life instead of death. Well, having taken a journey through the text of Genesis 20, what conclusions can we come to? One thing we can say here is that Abraham, the Abraham of Genesis 20 looks like the lot of Genesis 19 in some ways. I think it's purposeful. In Genesis 19, Lot had been a foreigner dwelling in Sodom, and Lot had acted in an unscrupulous way with the females of his family, wanting to turn over his daughters to the crazed mob. In Genesis 20, Abraham is a foreigner dwelling in Gerar, and Abraham acts in an unscrupulous way with a female in his family, with his own wife. Sarah is handed over to Abimelech. A judgment had come on the Sodom of Genesis 19, and a judgment was threatened on Philistia in Genesis 20. So there are parallels to be sure. But more than that, as we've said, What we have in Genesis 20, and I hope we've seen it, and I hope that it brings you encouragement, 
what we have in this chapter is God continuing to work his covenant designs all by himself, despite the lunacy of the covenant partner Abraham. In Genesis 20, God went solo and God did a whole bunch of work, didn't he? Maintaining his covenant promises in the midst of human folly. What did God do? He preserved Sarah. He preserved Sarah's purity despite the danger that he was in, she was in. God brought Sarah back to Abraham despite Abraham's stupidity in giving Sarah away. God ended up making Abraham a blessing to the nations as Abraham prayed for Abimelech and Philistia despite the fact that Abraham had started out in Genesis 20 being a curse to the nations. And then finally, God ended up blessing Abraham with Abimelech's silver, oxen, sheep, and servants despite the fact that Abraham in no way, shape, or form deserved such a blessing. That's the gospel. This is all good news for you and I. Because it teaches us that that despite the fact that you and I often get controlled by fears, more than we rest in God's promises, despite the fact that you and I can often go off on faithless tangents in our lives, somebody say amen, Amen. like Abraham did, despite the fact that many of us tend not to learn our lessons very easily with God and we repeat the same errors like Abraham, God will yet accomplish his great and good purposes in spite of us, if necessary. And blessed be God, like Abraham, who received that massively completely undeserved gift package of silver, oxen, sheep, and servants after Abraham had lied and after he'd created that huge mass. So God gives us a gift, an infinitely more massive gift, to undeserving sinners, and that's the gift whose name is Jesus Christ. Each of us has been faithless. Each of us has distrusted God. Each of us have created messes and we have sinned. And yet, God in his grace sends his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus is the king who is like Abimelech in Genesis 20, but Jesus is a thousand million times better than Abimelech in Genesis 20. In Genesis 20, Abimelech was a semi-righteous king who was innocent in large part except for the fact that Abimelech had another man's wife in his possession and Abimelech would have touched Sarah if not for God's restraining power. God threatened a deathly judgment on Abimelech and as we saw this morning in several places in Genesis 20, as went the king, so went the nation. The king was so connected to the people that the entire nation would suffer for the king's trespass. Jesus is better than Abimelech. Because unlike Abimelech, Jesus is 110% righteous. Jesus is completely, totally innocent in every matter. No fault can be found in Jesus Christ like it could be found in Abimelech. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And yet it was on innocent Jesus that God laid the sin of the world. And this righteous king was a dead man indeed. On his cross. Because of my sin and because of your sin. And in the end, no Abraham came along to pray for Jesus and release him from the sentence of death that came upon him because of our sin. Abimelech the king had been organically connected to the people of his kingdom. As went the king, so went the kingdom. Jesus the king is organically connected to his people, except that in the case of King Jesus, 
There is no sin on his part that threatens the people of his kingdom. Rather, it's the opposite. It's the people's sin that the king absorbs. Amen? It's our sin that Jesus takes to his cross as our substitute there to die for our transgressions that we might be forgiven and we might go free. He is our representative. He is the king who is sacrificed in our place. King Jesus is so connected to his people that he suffers for his people's trespasses and his righteousness is imputed onto his undeserving people in amazing grace. So this morning, in the light of God's grace in King Jesus, here's the instruction. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are unendingly, eternally, perfectly, and totally committed to yourself, to your covenant plans, your good and glorious, righteous and just designs and purposes. And we praise you this morning, Lord, that you have condescended to work with the likes of us, to bring us from a place of faithlessness and sin and wickedness into your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be made righteous and forgiven of our sins and, and have the, the power of the Spirit who enables us to complete the work that you have called us to do. We pray, Lord God, that we would ponder and consider and chew on this word in Genesis 20 more throughout today and throughout the week, that you would bring it to our remembrance and work your pleasure in us and through us by your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.